0: We're looking at Mark chapter 2, and we're going to be starting off here at verse 13. Now, how many of you go to the doctor or have been to the doctor? We all have, right, to an extent. Nikki, you're a nurse. When people come and see you, are they healthy or are they sick? Do you do you reckon, There's no right or wrong, Anthony. Do you do you reckon, Okay, some people may think they're sick, but do for the most part are they coming to you because there's an issue or a problem? Okay, how many of you go to the doctors primarily when you're not feeling well? I know we do checkups and things like that, but you know there there's a purpose and a reason for, for preventative practice. But the reason we go to the doctor is what? We don't feel well, right? There you go. So what I want to do today is we're going to go through um, this, this part of Mark, the Gospel of Mark here, and Jesus' interaction with a particular individual by the name of Matthew. In the book of Mark, they refer to him as, as Levi, same individual here. And you guys have, have probably been familiar with or know about the, the story or the, the encounter with Levi where Jesus goes and dines with sinners, right? How many of you have heard that before? Now, uh, This is a, a, a passage in a scripture that, that we should use and that we should apply to our lives when it comes to our interactions with the world. How many of you know people, though, that are afraid to interact with the world and kind of see the world as such as, okay, I'm a Christian, I'm holy, and I'm set apart, right? Because that's what being holy as an individual means. So I'm just going to stay away from the world and not interact with the world. And I'm just going to do me and focus on me and my Christian friends. How many of you know people like that? Or possibly how many of you maybe struggle with that mindset? We know people like that. We've, we've interacted and encountered people like that. They, they, they take the passages in Scripture that talk about not being friends with the world because if you're friends with the world, you're at enmity with God and things like that. And there's truth to that. There's truth that we are called to look different than the world. But there is also a truth in understanding and knowing that as Christians, there is a call for us to interact with sinners, interact with people who don't know God. What is our our mission here on earth? We are called to live a life, to give honor and glory to God, to represent that. We're called to go out and spread the gospel. We're called to go out and work the harvest field, if you will. What is that harvest field? What does it look like? Does it look like other Christians? Does this harvest field look like people that are good and great and righteous? This encounter here with Levi leaves this example to us, not so much about Jesus and his willingness to go to those who are lost, go to those who are sinners, but it's also, too, if we look at it and as I go through the passages, you also see the response that Levi has as well, this willingness to follow Christ. And it shows the authority that Jesus Christ has as well. Now we read and covered last week, and this is one of the reasons why I'm going to this, this chapter, is what did we read about last week? The rich young ruler, remember? Did he leave everything that he had to go follow Christ? This was an individual that thought that he was doing everything right. He was obeying all the commandments. He was doing these things that he was raised to do and thinking that this is the goal and the key to inheriting eternal life and going into the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus saw his heart, right? Remember the word, he loved him, which means he showed compassion because he knew that there was a heart defect here. And we as Christians today, we as people, we can automatically assume that we're just good people because we haven't committed adultery, because we haven't murdered, because we haven't stolen anything, okay? But we got to remember, and I told my wife this, that when Jesus is teaching his followers the heart issue here, where he says, you've heard it said, Jelaine, that thou shalt not commit adultery, but if you look at someone with lust in your heart, you're guilty of that sin. This isn't to stop and say, church, that if you look at someone with lust, that you have done something just as bad as committing adultery. What Jesus was looking at here was the full measure of the sin. How does adultery start, church? What does it start with? It starts with a thought. Yep. Thou shalt not commit murder, but I tell you that if you have hate or discord in your heart towards a brother or a sister without just cause... What are you guilty of? Why is that? Is it because it's just as bad? See, I could shame you guys all day. I could shame, you know, I could shame Mariah, I could shame Jalay, I could shame Whitney, I could shame everyone here by saying, if you guys have hate in your heart, you're just as bad as committing murder. You're just as bad as a murder. And that's not what Jesus was teaching. He's wanting to let you know the full measure of the sin here. Because usually what does murder start with? Starts with anger. How many of you have ever read someone murdering someone because they just absolutely love them and they're happy with them and they smell pretty and they make them feel, I just want to go kill this person. There's something inside of them that has discord. And it's eating at them. Remember what Jesus says to Cain and the interaction. Easy, Cain. You have sin crouching at your door and it's ready to have you. All Jesus is wanting to do is have us realize and remember first and foremost that we've all fallen short, that even this rich young ruler who walks up confidently and saying, I've done these things, kind of putting himself on par with the goodness of God. Jesus is like, no, no, no. I can look at your heart, but there's one thing you lack. Go sell everything that you have, then come follow me. Downcast, he walks away. And I wanted you guys last week to really consider and think about that this was the barrier for the rich young ruler. But it's not just money for some. As I said, poor people have barriers as well. It's not just about money. He was looking at this individual. We all have barriers in our life that's preventing us from walking with the Lord the way that he calls for us to walk. But in this in this encounter with Levi, it's this beautiful story and I, I want to give you guys context of how you guys have heard, like none of us like taxes, right? We don't. We, we hear the story that Matthew, Levi was a tax collector. And okay, back then they were just looked at as the low of the lows. But I want to give you guys a little bit of an identity of why that was. And it'll give you guys a little bit more of an imagery here on what Jesus was really doing and what he was doing and broadcast to the religious leaders who were looking down on him for his encounter and his interaction with Levi, the tax collector, and with the sinners. Because one thing I want to make sure that you guys never do is I don't want you guys to take this incident or this encounter because some people do this as an excuse to be friends with the world. That's not what he's saying here. As I've made jokes before, Jesus doesn't go in and dine with these sinners, kick back and drink a Bud Light and smoke cigarettes and start acting like the world. Jesus comes to them because he knows this is the sick. These are the ones that need the doctor. These are the ones that need to hear the message. My wife and I, we love church folk. We love Christians. We also love encountering and dealing with people that don't know the Lord. Because guess what? We know that they're the ones that need the doctor. They're the ones that are sick. They're the ones that are lost. So I, I, I pray and advocate that you guys be a body, a ministry, a church. Remember, you guys are individual ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You guys are called to go out and, and mingle and, and interact with non-believers, regardless of what they look like. And this might be tough, regardless of the things that they're involved in. Because you are not called to sway. You are not called to budge in your belief. This is where the maturity of the Christian comes in. Can you relay truth in love? Because your truth is going to offend people regardless. Regardless of how loving, pretty, and how much you smile and package the truth up and give it to people, there will be people that are offended by it. And we see this in everyday life. We see this even if you aren't a Christian and you have friends that you know are living lives that are destructive. I've preached on this before. And you come to them with truth because you love them. Parents with kids have had to do this numerous times. You have to just be the person in their life, not the yes person, but the person that sits there and lays out the truth in front of them in love and says, this is where you are. You have all these people over here telling you the way you're going is great, good, and dandy, but you know from past experience, I know from my interaction with this situation in past experience, that you're going down a path of destruction. How many of you have had to be that friend in a life of a person? Where you've had to be the person that just points out the hard truth of it. And they don't respond with hugs and tears. And thank you, Chris, for enlightening me to this truth. Thank you for that. Dawn, oh my gosh, if I didn't have you as a friend, I was... No, some people look at you, who do you think you are? Who are you to tell me that? I am me, a sinner saved by God's grace that knows what it means to live a life as such. And as it says up there, in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. It's just not ironic, church, that when you live a life to your own ways that your paths don't seem so straight. But it does seem pretty holy and awesome that when you live a life trying to honor the Lord and give him glory out of reverence and love and faith, that there's a peace element to your life that wasn't present before. That's right. Alright, so, that was the mini-sermon before the sermon. I'm going to go ahead and re- read through the text. We're going to go from verses 13 down through 22. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. This lake, this area he's talking about, is the Sea of Galilee. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. you got to remember here in context, this part here, Jesus had... Had previously left the gathering or these groups of people because they were all coming basically just to experience the supernatural powers that he had. Jesus will remind us previously that yes, he performed these miracles and he did these things, but he said he wanted to retreat because he wanted to continue to preach and teach. That's why I came. He used the miracles, right, as almost like the sense of validity to the words that he was speaking of him being the Messiah, of him being God, but. The struggle that he saw in the hearts of the individuals, though, was that he knew that many of them were just there for the cake and ice cream. It wasn't for the message that he was bringing, right? It wasn't to hear the message that he wanted to bring in regards to the kingdom. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Now, I want you guys, here we go. This wasn't, what's the famous tax place that people go to a lot, Brenda? What? Famous tax place that people use? H&R. H&R. This didn't look like an H&R block. Okay, so when we think of tax office, this isn't them walking, Jesus goes by, and there's this structure where people... How many of you have a deer blind that you utilize? Or even like a little deer shanty? Like I've seen some guys get pretty, pretty creative with like sticks and twigs and all that stuff. I want you guys to envision basically something that almost looks like a deer blind. Like a little dome, Okay. This is the tax office that Jesus is referring to. And I'm going to give you guys some context of why these were placed in the position that they were along the Sea of Galilee. Because remember, we all don't like taxes. But this is the imagery that I want to give you and why Levi was looked at in the way that he was. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. Now we read this here that there was really not a lot of interaction. There could have been. But what we're seeing here is Jesus simply, you know, get up and come follow me. We know by this point, I'm sure Levi had heard something about Jesus, whatever the case may be. But this really, truly speaks to the authority of Jesus Christ. Remember, he had this extended interaction with the rich young ruler. And at the end of it, the rich young ruler did what? Walked away. What does Levi do? He gets up and he goes. I'm going to give you guys context and background on why that's a big deal. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, "Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners?" On hearing this, Jesus said to them, "Is it not the healthy or is it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick? I have not come to call the righteous, but I have come to call sinners." Verse 18 here Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. So he's making reference here to his, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension back into heaven. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth to an old garment, otherwise the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. So, reversing here, looking once again at this encounter with Levi, the tax system back in the Lord's day was corrupt and messed up, and some of you are probably thinking, so is ours today, amen, whatever. But I want to give you guys an idea of why Levi and other tax collectors were just shunned in the way that they were. Okay. So Rome basically held control over all the tax systems when it came to the Jewish people. Okay. Jewish people were under the oppression and the rule of the Romans. They controlled everything, and there were two primary forms of tax collectors. There was the tax collector that was pretty much just responsible for collecting just the everyday base tax, like your land tax, property tax, all of those things. This was like a fixed rate that they had. But then there was another kind of tax collector that was basically hired and responsible for taxing anything and everything that they could think of. And at the end of the day, this money, of course, went back to who? Rome. So, what would they would do is, is the, the Roman Empire would, let's say they would hire Jelaine. Okay? She's Roman, she's Greek. She would be responsible for a certain providence, if you will, of Judea, which is where they were at. okay? Jelaine knew that she could go out and then hire a couple Jewish people to go, and then they would find, instead of the providence, they would find districts that then they would be responsible for. So Jelaine would go, she would hire, let's say, Mariah and Betty, okay? Mariah and Betty would be in charge of something, they would, let's say they're Jewish, and they would go and they would establish this tax rate that they would report back to Jelaine with. I think that I could get from this area in this district about X amount of dollars from these people for their taxes. So Jelaine would listen to that, and Jelaine would tell them, okay, go do it. But here's what Betty and Mariah would do. They would go to this area, so let's say they were gonna do $5. Back then that was a lot, okay? I think two shekels are worth, like, or yeah, two shekels are like $3 in US dollars. Let's say Mariah and Betty would go out, and instead of reporting what they reported to Jelaine about what they would collect, they would up the price a little bit to the district. So Betty and Mariah would go, okay, I told Jelaine I can get $5 from these people. They're gonna go out and they're gonna go, I can get, you guys owe us seven, you owe us $7. So then what would Betty do with the extra $2? She'd be able to pocket it, okay? But that doesn't end there. Basically, Betty and Mariah, if they wanted to, let's say they would go to someone else individual and say, hey, let's get involved in this little thing here. They could actually go out and recruit more people. So it's almost like a pyramid scheme. And the the Jewish people were very well aware of this. The issue is, is that if you were a tax collector in Judea, you basically were saying to the Jewish people that you renounced and denounced your heritage, your race, and you were falling under line of those evil, nasty Romans. I'm going to push away from what I know, my people, my God, my bloodline, for the comfort that this oppression from Rome was presenting to me. You were like a social leper. People did not like you because you were basically exploiting them. But it wasn't just the exploitation. It was literally you just saying, forget Israel. Forget the God of Israel. I want comfort, and these people can provide it to me. And it's going to come at the backs and the pockets of my people. So I want you guys to envision that. How many of you would like someone like that if you were Jewish? So when you see this encounter with Levi, this social leper, you can kind of get an understanding of why this was seen as scandalous by the religious leaders. Like, why is Jesus interacting with this guy? Why is he having dinner and meals with this guy? And Jesus then goes on to say in our teaching, when the Pharisees saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked the disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And I love that he's speaking to the Pharisees in this manner because he could have easily added on here to the end of verse 17. On hearing this, Jesus said to the Pharisees, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Like you guys. Because what were the Pharisees doing? They were living this life of just false humility, right? We've we've taught and preached about how they would purposely go and fast during the days where where the Jewish people would go to the temples on Tuesdays and Thursdays. They would hide in their back room and cover themselves with dirt and look just all disgruntled and nasty. And people would see them and they were like, Oh my gosh. Jordan looks like this amazing Pharisee who loves the Lord because he smells awful and looks like garbage. He must really be fasting hard for the Lord. He sat in the front, dude, so you get picked on. So this is the stuff that can happen. So when Jesus is encountering the Pharisees, they're just simply looking at everything from this deeds first mindset, works first mindset. You got to do, do, do to be, b right? So, this is what he's looking at. So, he goes to these Pharisees and he's like, I didn't come to save those who think they're righteous. I've come to save sinners. Almost indirectly saying those who think they're righteous are sinners. So, when we think about individuals out there that don't interact with the world, I'm not saying be friends with them, but those who come off self righteous. I'm a Christian. What business do I have to, to be with with those kind of people? No, no, no. What are you here for? What is your calling as a Christian? It isn't to be comfortable. It isn't to be complacent. It isn't to be friends with the world either. It isn't to, to be and look like them. You're called to look different, but you are called to interact And to spread this gospel that you've been given. So why hold on to it for yourself? You believe in its power. You believe in the the work that it does inside of us. The transfer. Why not go and spread it? So he's wanting to lay this out though for the Pharisees and letting them know, you guys are the sinners. You're the self-righteous. I've come to those people who willfully and openly trust in me and know and trust in the word that I bring and the message that I bring. Not just the things that I do, but they believe in the word and the message that I bring. They know that they have been sinners, right? You have the the Pharisee that's standing up and, and boasting to the Lord about his tithing and what he does and all that stuff, but then you look at the man who pounds his chest and yells at God to have mercy on him, a wretched sinner. Which one of those two do you think God sees as righteous? the man that's pounding his chest openly saying, I need a Savior. Guys, there's freedom in this message that we have to grab a hold of, because so many of us walk around and thinking there's this appearance that we have to have, not just with others, but also we got to do something first to be something first with the Lord, and, and that's not the message that Jesus brings. So then, once again, the Pharisees, they're hounding Jesus now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples, the disciples of the Pharisees, are fasting, but yours are not? What was the reason for fasting? Any of you guys can, can throw this out. Why, did, why do people fast? Draw closer, to the Lord. Draw closer to the Lord. John's reason for preaching his message of repentance was what? Got to repent, right? Repent. So we see this. Fasting was a way to almost express or show the manifestation of that repentance. So you realize you're a sinner. We read in the Old Testament, right, people would tear their clothes, put on sackcloth, put dirt on their head and all that. It was this way of almost showing mourning. But when we truly repent, fasting was a means to kind of express that manifestation of repentance. Because repentance is not just to say, I'm going to stop doing this. Repentance is a mind change. It's a way of looking at the sin in your life and going, okay, that's not good. I crave the things that are righteous and I look at sin as the way that it is. And before I did, before I loved sin, and even though I may slip to it still, I need to repent of it and go to the Lord. Right? So fasting was seen as that. So Jesus is confused by why the Pharisees are bringing this element up. Because they're supposed to be the experts of the law. Right? So Jesus looks at them and And once again, even in reference to when Jesus speaks about, and we we see it further on down in in Mark and the other Gospels, where the Pharisees are holding this tradition element up above the commandments of God. Right? Like, you need to wash your hands before you eat, Dave. You're defiling yourself by not doing so. Chris is like, yeah. How many of you guys wash your hands before you eat, for the most part? It's pretty important, right? Right? For you guys that aren't eh, nasty, you guys got to make that a habit. What Jesus is making reference though in this encounter that you'll read about too in the Gospels is, is that it's not what enters our bodies that defile us, right? Like we eat this stuff and it goes in our stomachs and the Bible says we eliminate it. You guys can use your imagination. We, we get rid of this stuff that goes in our body. He says that what comes out of our mouth is that which defiles us. We speak what's in our heart. eventually. You guys can fake it as long as you want, but eventually what you're harboring in there is going to come out. Mm-hmm. Amen? Yeah. It is sitting in there just rolling around. I'm going to act like I'm good, happy, and dandy, but man, the day that Jelaine asked me to pass the salt shaker and I'm not good, things are going to go flying. I, I, it, this is the stuff that he's yeah, wanting to say. This is the yeah. stuff that he's, he's wanting to make reference to it. It's what's in our hearts that defiles us. It's what comes from our mouths. And he even goes on to saying how they take these commandments, and I love, and I'm, I'm just going to branch off here, I believe it's in Mark chapter 7, we look at the beltline commandment of the Ten Commandments, right? Thou shall honor thy mother and father. This was a method that the Pharisees used to use this traditional preaching to where they could exploit people. In, in Mark chapter 7, you read about this incident, or this incident where Jesus says to the Pharisees, when people are giving but they don't have enough to give, because let's say Jelaine and Josh want to make sure that the money that we have is to pay mom and dad's electric bill. Okay? That's what we want to do. We want to pay the electric bill. Let's say Whitney walks in and she's a Pharisee and she's like, hey, I know you want to pay the electric bill, but this is what you guys could do, because you only got so much money. You can issue a corban. C-O-R-B-A-N, on this offering, which basically means that we're setting aside this money and giving it to the temple, giving it to God, as they would say. So jelena and I would be like, all right, honor mother or father or give to the temple, which in the end, where does those temple dollars end up going? Into the pockets of the Pharisees. So Jesus is looking at the Pharisees and going, I know what you guys are doing. You're nullifying the commandments of God and exalting your traditions above that the Pharisees are standing there like, oh my gosh, this guy, he's got us. You are called to honor your mother and father. So in in truth, when Jelaine and I want to pay mom and dad's electric bill and Whitney comes in, we're called, Whitney, get out of the house. We're not not giving you that money. We're doing the thing that, that the Lord commands by honoring our mother and father more so than before we give to the temple, which in the end, you get a percentage of that money. So That is him pushing and and calling out the tradition exaltation that the Pharisees have. But when, when Jesus is approaching this element where they're talking about John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, Jesus wants to give expression to the imagery here that this is a time to celebrate. This isn't a time to be sad, so why would my people be fasting? He goes on to say, Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. Weddings back in the Lord's Day did not last a day. They did not last a couple hours. They did not start with people gathering up and then Josh standing up and going through and giving a message, and then they kiss, and then people hang out afterwards for a couple. No, wedding feasts back then lasted a week. A week. It It was a time to celebrate. This was not a time to fast. It wasn't a time to show sadness. So we're seeing here that Jesus is indirectly making reference once again to his bride being who? The church. Him being the groom. Him stating and showing that there will be a time, though, where fasting would be into account. Where there will be a sense of mourning and sadness. And that's when the groom leaves his bride. Where the groom leaves his church. And that is what we see when Jesus is crucified, he's resurrected, and he ascends back up into heaven. And he says, on that day they will fast. And Jesus wants to make hold here in in verse 21. He, He wants to leave this expression with these Pharisees because they're stuck in this old thinking mindset. Okay, It isn't that he's wanting to do away with the Old Testament. It isn't that. We're seeing here by Jesus' ministry as we know He didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. And that law is being fulfilled right in front of the eyes of the people. Born of a virgin, right? We talked about this. Lived a sinless life. Even the way that He died. Even the way that He was crucified. Even the way that He resurrected. All these things were prophesied. These things are being fulfilled right in front of their eyes. So what he's letting them know is, is it's not that we're doing away with necessarily or, or pushing to the side what we've learned in the law of God, but there's this new covenant that's going to take place because I'm coming to fulfill the old. And in that old, this new will come. But he, in calling out the Pharisees and their mindsets, their, their exaltation of tradition, their skewing of the words and the teachings that they've gone to, they're exploiting the people. Jesus wants to let you and I know, let the Pharisees know that unless you're willing to accept what he's giving, unless you're willing to put down the old and move on into something new with him, there can be no match. So this is why he uses this analogy. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Why is that? After we wash our clothes and dry it so often, especially after that first time, sometimes we put on shirts or jeans we're like, oh, this fits great. And then we wash and dry it once we're like, crap, it doesn't fit so good now because it shrunk. This is a natural thing that happens with fabric when we wash it and when we dry it. The fabric shrinks. Jesus is sitting here saying is, is I can't take that new patch that's never been washed and never been dried And apply it to a shirt that's been washed and dried over and over again that has has shrunk as much as it could shrink. Because when I sew that patch on there, then it begins to shrink. It's going to take the old fabric and do what? It's going to tear it. It's going to to mess up the the, the whole foundation of the old fabric and, in, in regard, even change and mess up the initial tear that I'm trying to patch up. So, this is Jesus wanting to say, once again, He's given this imagery. We can't do this if we're stuck with old ways of thinking. We can't move forward with him unless we're willing to accept the message that he's bringing the get up and follow me. And real quick, when we look at the contrast between Levi and the rich young ruler, Levi, guys, had comfort. He had a lot of comfort. He did. We we lose sight of that. Levi's pockets were getting filled. Levi was set up pretty nice. All right, He didn't mind the social stigmas, obviously, that were being thrown at him. People And we compromise like this in everyday life, do we not? We see this like, okay, I, I have a way possibly of getting some gain for myself. Ethically and morally, it might not look right, but I've been in this place of struggle. I have a chance to, to, to get mine now. I'm going to go for it. And all you need is just a couple people around you to kind of push that and to sit there and say, listen, you got to do you now. You've been struggling for a while. This is a good, yeah, people aren't going to like you, but it's because they're jealous of you. We see this encounter with Levi. The rich young ruler was there. He had a bunch of stuff and he was also doing good with the law, but his heart was struggling. We see Levi kind of in a similar situation. I'm not saying he was rich, but he was comfortable. Jesus goes to him and says, get up and follow me. What did he do? He arose and followed him. In both stories, we see that there's a sacrifice element that needs to be present in our lives to truly follow Jesus Christ. And I speak to you guys as wise people. I'm not saying to go home right now, Brandon and Nikki, and sell your home because you're just like, hey, this is really preventing us. I'm not saying to do that. I'm not telling you guys that you need to look ragged and nasty to be a Christian. But I am telling you guys to go to the Lord and have Him search your heart just like Jesus searched the heart of the rich young ruler. sawing that He was lacking something. And as I asked you guys last week to ask the Lord to show you the barriers that you have in your life to properly follow Him. And guess what? The return on investment for you and following Him, for you giving Him your life, your body, is you get peace from it. How many of you lack peace today? Right? Like This is huge. When we try to do things in our own accord... We lose our peace about us. We are swayed and bumped away from Christ. Jesus goes forward in saying, just even a, a, aside from the unshrunk cloth analogy, and no one pours new wine into old wine skins. They used to take goat skin, goat bellies, and they would pour wine in it. And the gases from the wine, the fermentation from the wine, would cause that skin to expand, and they would use it for sacks and other different materials. But eventually, that wineskin, those goat bellies, would only get so big. So, Jesus is using the same analogy here. He's saying, We're not going to pour new wine into old wineskins because what will happen, church, if those wineskins are at maximum stretching capacity? They're going to burst. So if, if we as Christians, if you as a Christian are sitting here, and this is a, a method that you've used where you've struggled in thinking that I have to take this old way of thinking, like I have to do certain things to be a certain way with God, I guarantee eventually in your walk in your faith, if, if it hasn't already happened already, everything's just blown up in your face. You have to live a life of understanding that the old is gone and the new is here you are a brand new creation in Jesus Christ. And there's peace that's surrounded with that. And Jesus is teaching this to the Pharisees and saying what is coming, what is here, and what will be is new. We have to unhinge from that, that old way of thinking. And once again, I am not saying unhinging from the Old Testament. Everything that you read in the Old Testament, the festivals and all, things that are referred to as the shadows of the things to come, The thing that's casting the shadow, the one that's casting the shadow, is the one here doing the teaching, and that's Jesus Christ. Put your focus on Him. He says, Otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. To accept this new, to accept what is, you yourself are brand new. You have to be brand new. Right? You have to put death to self in regards to properly walk with Jesus Christ. Walking in a manner and a way with him that brings about peace, brings about fruit in your life. Are we getting what's being spoken about here? Does this seem to make sense? So once again, in regards to his interaction with Levi, not just showing his love for those who are sinners, and I hope you guys had this, this imagery of what kind of sinner or person that Levi was looked at as, I want you guys to challenge yourselves in regards to your faith. And who is it today in your life that is a Levi? We all have a person in our life that's a Levi, right? Right? And I'm not telling you guys to conform. No, no, no. You are not to conform with the ways of the world. But you are called to be a Christian to the world. You are called to look different to the world. And we see the authority of Christ with the way that Levi responded to being called to come follow him. So much different than what the rich young ruler did. Levi had comfort. I'm willing to believe that just based on on the context of these tax collectors and what they experienced. The reason why they were doing what they were doing was they wanted comfort. And how many of us in here today seek that comfort? And what are we putting to the side for that comfort? Because following Jesus, it's easy, guys, to just sit there and say, I believe in God. He's, He's my Savior. But is He Lord over your life? Is He Lord? I gave the analogy and I'll give it to you guys in closing. When we speak about Jesus Christ and we speak about jumping out of a plane in a parachute, we could sit there and I can sit there in a plane with Betty and Jelaine and we can look at this parachute and say, I believe in this parachute. I believe that if I wore this parachute, that it's, it it, it's going to save me or that it is saving me by just simply noticing the parachute. But Betty, what do we have to do to make sure that the parachute saves us? We can say all day we believe in it, but what do we have to do with it? What do you have to do with it though? Put it on. on. How many of you are wearing Jesus Christ in your life? Not just simply saying you believe in Him. That is a challenge that I leave with you And remembering, it won't fit, it won't take, if you're stuck in the ways of the old. I don't care if it's religious stuff, I don't care if it's worldly ways, what he has for you, what he's spoken to you, this message, the gospel, if you try to intermingle it with old ways of thinking, worldly ways of thinking, it's going to be like new fabric on shrunken cloth. It's going to be like new wine in old wineskins. It's eventually just going to burst. But God is so great and awesome that he will even work through that. And some people pick that path. They pick this path of chaos and God, even in the midst of his glory and his holiness, will show people in their brokenness, I'm still here. You, you suffered for this. You, you made these decisions because I love you. But I'm still here. Are you ready to walk with me? Amen? Amen. All right, Heavenly Father, Lord, I just give you thanks once again for the the opportunity to speak your word to this body, Lord. And once again, I pray that individuals do a heart check, Lord, that that you give them discernment and wisdom to look at their heart, that that the words that are spoken through your Holy Spirit are are supernaturally um, able